Just a heads up, if you aren't aware, snuff films are alleged murders filmed for the purpose of entertainment, so there will be some descriptions of alleged violent content, but as usual, I did my best to avoid graphic detail. On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Ladies and gentlemen, the bloodiest thing that ever happened in front of a camera. She got this videotape from a friend of a friend. There are snuff films. The camera contained film that seemed to have recorded a killing. But who shot the film? And who committed the crime? Or was it a crime? Those answers next. In 1989, a rural Michigan farmer by the name of Robert Reed looked up into the cerulean sky and saw something quite out of the ordinary, a cluster of weather balloons that began to sink slowly down toward his field. He followed them until they finally touched the ground, and that's when he found the Super 8 camera that had been tied to the strings. Robert Reed was a logical man, and remembering the recent drug busts in the area, he assumed the device must have been a crude police surveillance unit created by the local marijuana farmers. And so, he did his duty as an American citizen and narc, and took the camera to the local police station. That's when it became clear that the hillside farmers were innocent. And what authorities found on that tape was way worse than a stoner's idea of security. In fact, the unspeakable horror they saw when they played it back would spark a year-long investigation. The video appeared to be a real-life snuff film, a ritual murder movie possibly made by a satanic cult. The alleged murderers were described by Michigan State Police Detective Paul Wood like this. These two people standing over the body had a distinctive type of uniform on. Uh, as I recall, black pants, uh, some type of leather jackets with a design on it, and one was wearing combat boots, and the other one was wearing black, looked like patent leather shoes. Uh, haircut real short. So if it was a homicide, I was thinking it was... Uh, Possibly a, a gang type homicide. The, the video, obviously filmed somewhere in the city, was sent to the Chicago Police Department, who were able to match the alley in the film to an alley in the Fulton River District. But they were not able to find any homicide that even remotely resembled what they had seen on that film. Needing even more backup, they passed the case along to the FBI, who quickly deployed their forensic pathology department, who authenticated that, yes, that was a real dead body. Every lead, of which there were almost none, came up dry, and so police began sending flyers to local schools and colleges around the area. And that's when an art student contacted the tip line, saying he recognized the images as those he'd seen in a recent music video on MTV. When they compared the tape with the video for a song called Down With It, they got in touch with the band in question to make sure that the man in the film was indeed alive. And soon, they were speaking with goth king himself, Trent Reznor, of the industrial band Nine Inch Nails. The camera attached to the balloons was the low-budget equivalent of a Hollywood crane shot, 
Only this one got away. He spent the whole day filling up these balloons with, with helium, and, and it kept taking more and more to, like, get enough lift to lift up a camera. We finally got it to work. It was kind of breezy. We knew that that was going to be a problem. It went up, and we were in between these buildings, and a breeze caught it, and it, it ripped. I was wondering if it was going to hit someone. When the news came through that, yeah, this was some sort of uh, cult killing, I'd been killed, this you know, it's a great story. Um, initial reaction was it was really funny. You know, something could be that blown out of proportion and this many people worked up about it. And I felt kind of good that the police had made idiots of themselves, you know. Did he say idiots? Don't tell that to retired cop Paul Wood. He's just glad that there's one less murder. Now, even though the Nine Inch Nails footage was a hoax, there are deaths and even murders caught on film. Sometimes a tragic accident or sometimes a murder by police or sometimes even a mass shooter live streaming their crimes. But the difference is these killings are not committed for the sole purpose of creating a piece of entertainment. The filming of them is a secondary intention. A snuff film is made for the sake of itself, meaning that it's not a murder caught on tape, but a murder committed for the express purpose of filming it for some kind of distribution, often among a handful of rich weirdos, or among those for whom the salacious sexual excesses of the modern world were just not enough anymore. This urban legend has been around for 50 years, and as we'll see, was formed as the result of a feedback loop between transgressive artists and moral pearl clutchers, between law enforcement agencies, right-wing Christian groups, radical feminists, and tabloid journalists, all of whom could use this story to support their own ideas, political agendas, and pocketbooks. For this episode, we're going to investigate the 1976 film that would serve as the foundation of this myth and how it was used as outrage bait by two very different political lobbies. At the end of this episode, we'll see what all of this sensational stuff has to do with A.A. A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. But as is often the case in post-war American history, we'll first have to bypass that lovable gang of enchanted animals in the Hundred Acre Wood and visit a different ragtag bunch of ragamuffin misfits who lived instead in an endless, empty desert on a ranch built as a set for B-movies. A wandering band of members of a so-called religious cult with a leader they called Jesus has had three of its followers arrested in the investigation of the murder of Sharon Tate and six others. Those arrested are two women and one man, and the Los Angeles police said they would ask murder indictment. When it comes to the Manson family, the impact of these 1969 crimes cannot be overstated. And from its swastika-engraved forehead burst forth a thousand moral panics. These were ritual-like, shockingly brutal crimes committed by a band of hippies, some of whom had once been good suburban daughters, who now seemed brainwashed by nonstop drugs and group sex orchestrated by their devious leader, Charlie. It was one of those crimes of the century that comes at a perfect historical moment, becoming a perfect symbol. In this case, the perfect story for what the older generation had already long believed, that the loss of Christian values through all these liberal revolutions would lead to their own sons and daughters playing happily in the blood of their victims. Writers and directors saw a lot of potential in this story and got to work immediately, scrambling to stand out to find some new angle of these crimes that would give them a leg up on the competition. 
1971 book, The Family, The Story of Charles Manson's Dune Buggy Attack Battalion by Ed Sanders, was the first to discuss a theory that the family had been making brutality films, which he then dubs snuff films, the first time the phrase ever appeared in print. The so-called evidence for this claim was from, of course, an anonymous member of the Manson cult, who allegedly told the author that he had been present when Manson presided over a ritual sacrifice in which a woman was decapitated on a beach. This idea that the Manson family made and sold snuff films was not totally out of the realm of possibility. It was well documented that members of the group stole an NBC news van full of expensive camera equipment. It's long been rumored, and is entirely possible, that they also filmed and sold footage of what I imagine could only be haunting orgies. But after the ranch was raided, the NBC tapes provided only video of some generic hippie skinny dipping. Those who still believed in the Manson snuff film story said that the tapes were hidden, buried in the desert outside Spawn Ranch, waiting to be discovered like some ancient, revelatory scroll. You think you could teach us? Do you know that much about living, loving? Yeah, show us. It's the man with all the answers, right? I Eventually, Ed Sanders would add an addendum to his book, stating that no evidence of said snuff film had ever been recovered. But the damage was done, as directors had already started pumping out Manson Sploitation B-movies that included The Death Master, in which a band of California hippies become mesmerized by the power of a long-haired vampire who becomes their guru. And also, I Drink Your Blood, in which a group of blood-sacrificing hippies with rabies try to wipe out an American small town. There was apparently a porno called Love in the Commune, which featured a, quote, Manson-type bawling a headless chicken. But no record of such a film exists. One of the worst attempts at Manson exploitation was a movie called Slaughter, filmed in the early 1970s, in which a cult of hippies murder a pregnant woman and her friends under the influence of a biker named Satan. It was created by low-budget grindhouse directors and spouses Michael and Roberta Findlay, who went down to Argentina where they were able to shoot for cheap, using locals in the majority of the roles, locals who did not speak English. And so the entire movie had to be overdubbed in post-production, looking so wildly out of sync as to render it virtually unwatchable. Unsurprisingly, Slaughter would be rejected by every distributor the directors contacted, and it seemed as if the film was dead on arrival. One of those distributors was low-budget porn and sex comedy producer Alan Shackleton, who had literally shelved Slaughter along with so many other unsellable movies. Four years later, in 1975, he would pick up a New York tabloid and read a story about snuff films that were being made in South America. The story was already somewhat familiar because there had been urban legends making their way through New York for the last couple of years. Stories of snuff films being seized at the southern border by FBI agents. There was something else familiar about it, too, and it triggered a faint memory of a movie he'd once seen. He found the tape on the shelf, right where he'd left it, dusted it off, and got to work. More after this. 
You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts. There was only one way to make this movie anything with a remote possibility of success, and that was to go the meta route. Slaughter was unsalvageable, unless it wasn't the real movie, unless he could somehow use how bad it was to his advantage. So he cut the credits off the beginning and end, giving the footage a rougher feel, and later in marketing, he would play up the South America angle he read about in the paper. But he had one more trick up his sleeve. He also added a completely new ending. In his version, as the original film comes to a close, a man off screen yells, cut, and then the crew is shown packing up for the day. The actress now standing up and getting ready to leave the set. But before she can, she's approached by the sleazy director. That was a gory seat, you know, that really turned me on. Really? Yeah. Kind of turned me on. Did it really? Yeah. I'll tell you, listen. Why don't, why don't you and I go over to the bed and we'll, we'll get turned on, we'll turn each other on, huh? With some of the worst special effects I've ever seen, the actress is then stabbed by the director in the shoulder and then in the lower abdomen. Her finger is cut off and then her whole hand sawed off, with blood so fake I think it might actually be red-orange house paint. He then pulls out her intestines, which were in fact pig intestines, and that part is pretty gross. But all in all, the fake gore and bad acting are a dead giveaway that this is nothing more than a B-horror movie stunt. But since the urban legend had laid the foundation, some of the more reactionary citizens were already primed to believe. And if there was any doubt about his intention, Shackleton called his new movie Snuff. Ladies and gentlemen, the bloodiest thing that ever happened in front of a camera, Snuff. The film that could only be made in South America, where life is cheap. 
When the posters for Snuff were hung in Times Square and rumors got around about its supposed content, many radical feminists were already battling the pornography industry under the belief that porn was, by necessity, demeaning to women. Some second-wave feminists, including several women who would become major voices in the movement, jumped to the conclusion that the film was real, that it was the result of an unregulated pornographic industry run amok. Apparently, Alan Shackleton had said he was going to pay women to pose as feminists protesting the film for publicity, but when word got around, potentially from enraged letters to the editor, written most likely by Shackleton himself, 50 people showed up with signs saying things like, murder is not amusing, and we mourn the death of our Latin American sister. Never mind the fact that the actress was white and from the United States. Meetings were held, petitions were created, and pickets were organized as they inundated local government officials with calls and contacted the press with their sensational claims. In Rochester, New York, a group of 40 feminists vandalized the poster for snuff and chained the theater doors shut, squirting glue into the locks. They created a human chain around the entrance while chanting, Stop Snuff Now, leading to several arrests. This picket made the primetime news on multiple channels, which only served to increase ticket sales to the point that the owner kept it running for an extra week. But in other cities, formal bans were actually put in place by local governments. Pressured by the increasing number of protesters, the Manhattan District Attorney was eventually tasked with all this snuff drama, and it would take him an entire month before he could prove for certain that the fakest gore I have ever seen was not in fact real. He concluded that it was nothing more than a case of conventional trick photography. In Monocle, New York, Another group of feminist activists demanded action from their district attorney, and he would hit theater owner Richard Dame with a second-degree obscenity charge for showing the film, even if it was fake. After a case lasting almost two years, Richard Dame would finally get himself off the hook by issuing, and I kid you not, a formal apology to all women for showing the movie. Prominent and outspoken feminist activist Andrea Dworkin would be in attendance at one of these protests, her very first, in fact. Applying the concept of snuff to her already fervent anti-pornography stance, she concluded that, quote, eroticization of murder is the essence of pornography. There are snuff films where women are murdered for the sexual pleasure of murdering women, and this material exists because it is fun, because it is entertainment, because it is a form of pleasure, and there are those who say it is a form of freedom. Certainly it is freedom. She would say in general of the snuff film Starlet, quote, she is entertainment, the boy next door's favorite fantasy, every man's pernicious right, every woman's potential fate. In a 1977 essay titled Erotica versus Pornography, another prominent feminist writer, Gloria Steinem, continued to raise the specter of snuff. She wrote that, quote, Graves of many murdered women were discovered around the shack of just one filmmaker in California. She also told a story about the last known showing of a genuine snuff film. It went like this. A senior partner in a respected law firm was allegedly holding monthly porno watch parties for a group of other powerful perverts. But when he showed a snuff film, 
It proved too much for many of the viewers, but none of them chose to stop it out of peer pressure. One of those in attendance did contact Gloria Steinem and Gloria Steinem only, with neither of them choosing to contact any sort of authorities. Without the internet, claims like this were difficult to fact-check, and more stories of snuff films would be repeated as if they were a well-established truth in Steinem's 1983 book Outrageous Acts and Everyday Rebellions, and then repeated in 1980's Take Back the Night, edited by Laura Lederer. Back in 1976, when Alan Shackleton was interviewed about the whole snuff hullabaloo, he said slyly, pickets sell tickets. And of course, he was right, with snuff grossing $300,000 in the first two months at the National Theater alone. He kept the mystery going when he was asked directly by Variety magazine if the film was authentic, quote, if it was real, I'd be a fool to admit it. If it was fake, I'd be a fool to admit it. David Caracas wrote in his book, Killing for Culture, quote, Snuff provided the evidence for something Shackleton had created, itself. But those who made up this feedback loop were not just artists and radical feminists, but also the typical artist and radical feminist enemy the right-wing Christian patriarchy. For them, this urban legend would prove to be yet another potent moral panic to add to their arsenal, more evidence that might help usurp the new liberal values of the nation and to reinstall the great America they remembered from their innocent youths licking giant lollipops in their little sailor outfits. That's my town there. Partly the way it is, partly the way I imagine it. From out here, it looks comfortable, doesn't it? Prosperous, even happy. Well, for the most part, it is. Except for the poison, the rot, the horribly toxic abscess. Magazines depicting lesbianism, homosexuality, transvestism, sadism, bestiality, masochism. In his book, The Bloodiest Thing to Ever Happen in Front of a Camera, Conservative Politics, Porno Chic, and Snuff, Author Stephen Milligan names the right-wing Catholic organization Citizens for Decent Literature as those who popularized the snuff legend with Christian audiences. It was an organization that in the early 1970s boasted 100,000 members. Charles Keating, nicknamed Mr. Clean, had been a leading voice in the anti-pornography crusade for a decade. He had been telling essentially the same story that Andrea Dworkin had been telling, of that slippery slope of the evils of pornography that ended in actual murder, and murder for profit at that. But the CDL had been quicker to the draw than radical feminists, actually spreading this urban legend before Snuff the Movie made its debut. In 1971, the CDL began mass mailing increasingly alarming letters to their members about the growing threat of pornography, often several in a month. These mailers were also asking for donations, donations upon which the entire organization depended. It worked really well, and the CDL went from making $140,000 a year in 1970 to two million by 1972. It also became clear that when the sensational stories became worn out, the donations slowed down as well, until a new and even more pressing degeneracy was allegedly exposed. And so, Things needed to keep getting worse and worse out there in a crumbling America, whether they really were or not. 
The first time the organization would mention snuff films was in 1974, with the national director, Raymond Gower, penning this sentence to top off his list of hardcore porn tropes. There may very well be filmed an actual murder for kicks. And then, in a speech not long after, We've also seen a progression from simulated violence to sadomasochistic films, in which participants are tortured. It is not hard to believe a progression to the ultimate obscenity, the taking of human life for sexual kicks. And then soon after that, in an article called Perversion for Profit, Reliable informants report as many as 25 snuff films in current circulation. Over the next few months, that claim would go from ponderous speculation to aggressively stated fact. Here it is, spelled out by Gower plainly in another 1974 mailer. They're called snuff films because they show the murder of a young girl. The monsters who make these films and the perverted people who watch them have taken one more giant step on the downward path of pornography. The pornographers are using the most powerful communication tools in the world to deaden the conscience and dull the moral standards that more than 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian culture and training have built. This was the mailer that a concerned citizen sent to the Cleveland FBI office in early 1975, and the agency took it quite seriously, teaming up with the LAPD vice squad because claims had been made about these movies being passed around by the sin-soaked Hollywood elite. So they went to the man who had written the letter, CDL's Raymond Gower, who spun a salacious tale of his mysterious underworld informants who had told him that in 1969 outside of L.A., a satanic ritual murder had been filmed and distributed to well-heeled individuals. Then the FBI spoke to another CDL spokesman named Richard Dorman, who echoed these claims, telling the FBI that a ritually murdered, decapitated woman's naked body had been found on a beach in 1968. If you'll recall, this is almost identical to the story told in Ed Sanders' The Family, the story of Charles Manson's Dune Buggy Attack Battalion. Of course, the New York tabloids were not about to sleep on this apparent blood-drenched, sex-crazed, satanic ritual murder porn industrial complex. And soon, the Daily News published an article called Snuff Porn, The Actress is Actually Killed. The very article that would inspire producer Alan Shackleton to transform the footage of slaughter into snuff. In the piece, journalist Dick Brass made salacious claim after salacious claim with no physical evidence. He said that eight snuff films were being passed around and screened privately for $300 in luxury apartments or on posh estates for the, quote, well-heeled in the leather crowd. He also quoted NYPD Organized Crime Control Bureau Detective Sergeant Joseph Horman. I am convinced that these films actually exist and that the person is actually murdered. I suppose you could say that they are the ultimate obscenity. The thing that is really astonishing is that there is such a market for these films. Horman also added this piece of compelling evidence as well. The most popular film in a country is Jaws. That's the story of a fish that eats people. The deputy sergeant had said that he too was in contact with shadowy sources from the toned underbelly of the porn industry. And not only that, but he had been following leads in Argentina given to him by John F. Kennedy's press secretary. 
Of these eight alleged snuffers, as Horman called them, he would claim that the only reason that none had been found was that the FBI had killed the story for possibly nefarious reasons unknown. The FBI didn't like this at all, and eventually Horman would be forced to admit under oath during a congressional hearing that he made all of it up and that the truth was he had no idea what a snuff film even was before journalist Dick Brass got in touch with him for an interview. They'd also have Raymond Gower testify, who had made those original ritual murder claims in those mailers. But he was not considered a reliable source by the FBI, who even called him flaky. But still, after the hearings were over, no one could stop Gower from his God-given right to continue to tell these false stories on TV, which he did. The feedback loop continued when major media outlets started reporting that the LAPD and the NYPD and even the FBI had been actively investigating these stories, and that was enough to inspire the feeling that something sinister was definitely going on. But after inquiries by all of these departments, not a stitch of evidence for snuff films was found only a trail of alarmist reports, all of which could be traced back to the rumors popularized by the Citizens for Decent Literature. The head of the Adult Film Association of America was so angered over these slanderous reports that he challenged the CDL to hand over the evidence they claimed to have to support the existence of these murder movies. Going a step further, the association publicized a reward of 25 grand for anyone who could prove the existence of a genuine snuff film. But no one ever came to claim it. More after this. After this transgressive sexuality of the liberal 1970s, America slid into a reactive Christian decade with religious lobbies, televangelists, and right-wing politicians, and eventually feminists too, stoking a satanic panic over things like heavy metal, horror movies, and the satanic ritual abuse of women and children. The story was returning to those original Mansonian roots as moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories swore that ritual murders were now commonplace in America. And it was at the end of that decade, in the dark heart of the satanic panic, that Nine Inch Nails made that adorable blunder, sending a tape of what appeared to be footage of one such murder floating away into the sky on giant balloons, waiting to be uncovered. You cannot make this shit up. After the police got the art student's tip, they were shocked to learn that the weird images on the film had nothing to do with a gang killing or satanic ritual, but with something many people feel is just as insidious. Speaking of quaint images, I know what's really on your mind. You're wondering, but what Chelsea Weber Smith could snuff films possibly have to do with Winnie the Pooh? Well, I'm so glad you asked me such a specific question. No, sadly, the chums of the Hundred Acre Wood are not an elite ring of murderous pornographers, but one story from A.A. A. Milne's work has been used to illustrate how false facts and urban myths like manufactured snuff films became widely accepted as true. It's called the Woozle Effect, named for a tale of Pooh and Piglet searching all over the snowy forest for what they call a woozle. 
as they're following its tracks in the snow, they start to see more and more footprints from what they believe to be more woozles as they continue on their hunt. Finally, wise human Christopher Robin explains that the pair have in fact been following their own footsteps in a circle again and again and again, making more and more and more footprints. The woozle effect happens when a piece of widely accepted foundational evidence is actually false or misleading, but has been cited so frequently that it appears to be an established fact. Soon enough, these woozles are so embedded that academics and writers and people in general will begin to use phrases like, it's widely understood that, or it is obvious that, or everyone knows that, while referencing, accidentally, a debunked study or statistic or story. Woozles are the fertile ground out of which moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories bloom, circling around themselves again and again and again in a feedback loop of storytelling. In the case of snuff films, a brief mention in one of the many Manson books that appeared after the murders inspired the Citizens for Decent Literature mailers that triggered investigations by state police and the FBI, which triggered newspaper articles, which triggered artists to make transgressive art about the rumor, which triggered protests of those believing it was real, and then more transgressive art, and then more police investigations, and yet... No snuff film, no murder committed as a product to sell. Anyone can be lured into following a woozle. Even you. Even me. And that's what's so dangerous. This effect transcends any and all political lines. And the more you believe yourself to be immune to misinformation and disinformation, the more likely it is that you will fall prey to the charms of confirmation bias and quickly add the new information to your roster of facts that you believe support your opinion. As we've seen, sometimes one story can serve two or more agendas at once. The way radical feminists saw snuff films as proof that the pornography industry was brutalizing women, and conservatives saw it as proof that liberalism was evil and dangerous. When it comes to the individuals that spread these rumors, I don't know who did and who did not genuinely believe in the snuff industry, but each had a vested interest in these stories being true. These were the sensational facts that best backed up their argument, and so it was an easy choice to just believe. There were professional benefits in the story being true, financial benefits, and also the benefit of spreading awareness for their anti-porn causes, whether in the name of the Christian god or the feminine goddesses of Earth. The authors and directors and artists who used the legend also had a vested interest in keeping these myths alive. Those who blurred the line between fact and fiction, intentionally using moral panic to whip up outrage and thus publicity for their monstrous creations. An ironic speech given in 1974 by the CDL's Raymond Gower was summed up by author Stephen Milligan in The Bloodiest Thing to Happen in Front of a Camera. Gower told his audience that entrepreneurs in the adult film business were driven by a constant need to shock and therefore were always looking for a new novelty. But Raymond, 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 isn't that exactly what the CDL was doing, too? That's certainly what radical feminists were doing. That's what the media was doing. That's what the artists were doing. As we've long discussed on American Hysteria, shock and outrage are the most potent tools that can be employed to get the attention you want and eventually the result that you're looking for. 
Let's return now to our first story of Nine Inch Nails and their accidental foray into the snuff moral panic. Because, if you can believe it, the story gets even more interesting. Two years after that found footage had floated down into that farmer's field, Trent Reznor was staying in Beverly Hills, holed up in a rented mansion, recording the band's newest album, The Downward Spiral. He was pissed off, as rock stars tend to be, by the band's recent success, their last EP even peaking at number seven on the Billboard charts. In an interview with Spin Magazine, Trent Reznor put it this way, quote, After Lollapalooza, I had this snotty elitist mentality. You're not cool enough to like my band. Don't buy my records. I wanted to make a fuck you record. But it was also a bit of a knee-jerk, I'm not a pussy, I'm not a sellout attitude. And what better way to alienate all your new fans than to make an avant-garde art film? Trent had been a longtime fan of a visual artist and musician named Peter Sleazy Christofferson of the industrial groups Throbbing Gristle and Coil, who made short films that pushed all kinds of boundaries. He asked him to direct the video, which was to be a, quote, comment on the existence of snuff movies and people's obsession with them. It was shot to feel like a real piece of VHS found footage, was 20 minutes long, and called the broken movie. It included disgusting, horrific vignettes of things like decapitation, extreme fetishes, sexual assault, victims' limbs hacked off, torture machines, and a person put through a meat grinder. After Sleazy sheepishly handed off the final cut to Trent, both men agreed that this time they had gone too far. This was just too depraved, too evil. This creepy feeling was not helped when it was discovered that by some dark cosmic chance, the rented mansion where he had recorded the soundtrack album was located at 10050 Cielo Drive, the very house where the Manson family had brutally murdered Sharon Tate 20 years before. It was all just too freaky. And so their faux snuff film was officially snuffed out. Or was it? You see, that trickster Trent still made some copies of the film and gave them out to a handful of his friends. The video on each tape was altered slightly a little personalized imprint, so if the broken movie leaked, he would know which of his sneaky, sneaky little friends had done it. Whether he was hoping that his art film would get out to the public or not remains unknown, but perhaps Trent was hearkening back to his first brush with snuff. Lindsay Palicia says, she got this videotape from a friend of a friend. A tape that Lindsay's mother found by accident. It's, it's almost satanic to me. I find it, uh, they're mutilating people. They're having sex with what I, I see to be a corpse after it's been mutilated. Um, I, just, I just find it so disgusting. It passed on in hushed tones, copied again and again and again, from one VHS onto another, traveling from friend to friend to friend. As was the case with this primitive technology, each time a tape was copied again, it would lose a little bit of its quality, becoming grainier and grainier, and looking more and more like a real homemade movie. More and more like an actual snuff film. 
The origins of the false stories we believe are often like this too. They start with something misunderstood, a realistic hoax or a statistic from a debunked study or a lie made up by someone with something to gain. Just like the tapes, the more people who pass on the false fact, the fuzzier the picture gets and the harder it is to actually make out the original scene. And when you can't see all the details, it's easy to assume that the horror is real. Trent Reznor would later say of the leaked video and the legend that had formed around it, quote, what I considered at the time to be pretty obvious clues that this was a fake and was actually making a comment about those things were lost by the bad quality. And so it goes, a legend passed on through the decades, the next generation following the bloody footprints through the snow. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we're doing a deep dive into one website that many of us remember from the early days of the internet, but almost no one wants to talk about. If you want more of our show, you can become a patron by heading to patreon.com slash American Hysteria, where you'll get access to Hysteria Home Companion. For our upcoming episode, Miranda and I will be joined by American Hysteria team member Riley Smith so we can all talk about the urban legends and conspiracy theories surrounding the Manson family. That's coming later this month. You can also get access to Walk With Me, a podcast where I go on walks alone in different places and talk to you about whatever I want. On our latest episode, we went geocaching together. So check that out. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You can also follow us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter if you have some time, leave us a review wherever you listen. And if you'd like some merch, go to AmericanHysteria.com. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by Clear Como Studios, co-produced and edited by Miranda Zickler, and co-researched and edited by Riley Smith, with voice acting from Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And remember, the woozles you follow might just end up following you. Have a great day.